Russia calls off humanitarian deals and ratchets up indiscriminate military attacks. Vladimir Putin cracks down on dissent and threatens a wider war. And the West talks about shipping planes into Ukraine. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. The Ben Shapiro Show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Privacy is a right, not a privilege. Defend your rights at expressvpn.com slash Ben. So um, things suck right now financially. You may have noticed this. I mean, the inflation rate is now at 7%. Thanks to build back broke Biden better Benangadu. And and things are getting worse. And the inflation is about to ramp up even more thanks to supply chain problems, thanks to the price of oil rising and the price of wheat rising, foreign conflict. Now is a pretty good time to hedge against chaos and insanity and get yourself into some precious metals today. Today, an ounce of gold is worth $1,900. It was worth 300 bucks an ounce in 2000. I've been telling you for over five years, you can buy gold from Birch Gold. It is your hedge against inflation and uncertainty. Did you know there's another way to hedge against inflation as well? You can buy silver from Birch Gold. Silver is also considered real money. Historically speaking, it's extremely undervalued right now. It's an industrial metal in high demand for everything from electric cars to solar panels. Like it's an actual material people use, which means it's never going to be worth zero. Regardless, the American dollar is currently in the toilet. Precious metals are rising in value thanks to the Fed called Birch Gold. They are the only company I trust. Don't wait. Start diversifying. Text Ben to 989898. Get a free information kit on buying gold or silver in a tax-sheltered account. There's no obligation to get that information. Text Ben to 989898 to get that free information kit today. Well, as expected, there was no let-up over the weekend in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. According to the Wall Street Journal, Russian forces intensified strikes across Ukraine pushing toward the capital, Kyiv, and the country's second largest city, Kharkiv, while killing dozens of civilians and disrupting evacuation efforts. After beating off an initial Russian offensive, Ukraine is now preparing for a second wave of Russian attacks focused on major population centers around the country. Ukraine's national security advisor, Oleksiy Danilov, said in a social media post on Sunday, all of this according to the Wall Street Journal. The Russian plan, he said, is to encircle Ukrainian forces and create a situation of humanitarian disaster for the civilian population. Essentially, Ukraine's center is now surrounded on three sides. You have the Russians making significant gains in the south. They are also bordering on Odessa now. They've taken over Mariupol, surrounded Mariupol. They already controlled the eastern regions of the Donbass. And now they've been invading from the north and they are all the way to the borders of Kiev. Officials in Kharkiv said several civilians were killed after a Russian Agrad multiple launch rocket system fired on a line outside a grocery store. None of this is a shock. The Russian military tactic for a very long time has been, if you can't control, destroy. Images from the scene showed at least five bodies and streaks of blood on the snow. Russian airstrikes also hit the local TV station, disrupting broadcasts, as well as several residential neighborhoods and government buildings. Kharkiv officials said that two Russian bomber jets were down over the city, providing footage to corroborate their claims. Meanwhile, around Kiev, Russian forces were engaged in a heavy fight with Ukrainian forces northwest of the capital city, seizing parts of the town of Irpin. As thousands of civilians streamed out of Irpin, Russians shelling of the evacuation route killed eight people, according to local authorities. For the second straight day, Russian shelling disrupted the planned evacuation of some 200,000 civilians from Mariupol. Civilians had been expecting to leave, starting in Mariupol and nearby Volnavaka on Saturday in a deal overseen by the International Committee of the Red Cross, and then the Russians shut that down. That evacuation of Mariupol was a giant failure until the civilians remain trapped at this point. Meanwhile, the Russian forces killed a mother and a couple of kids outside of Kiev in shelling. And uh, and this was a picture that kind of zoomed around the world. So much of these wars now is, is I would say, driven by or at least fomented by pictures like this one. You're, we all remember the, the picture during the Libyan war of a kid who had been drowned because he was attempting to, to reach Europe on a boat and that boat went down and this was a worldwide scandal. Well, this picture obviously has been making the rounds. You have a, a mother and a couple kids who were killed uh, as, as they were attempting to leave Kiev. This is on the front page of the New York Times. Meanwhile, the Russian offensive continues to be somewhat stalled. Apparently, over a thousand troops, over a thousand troops were killed inside of a day inside of Ukraine. According to the UK Mirror, Russian forces have lost at least 1,000 troops a day to a ferocious defense from Ukrainian troops and defiant citizen warriors, according to the official Ukrainian numbers. The Russians, of course, deny this, and they say that it's a fraction of this. They say that the Ukrainians say there's been a loss of 11,000 soldiers, sailors, and airmen by day 11 of the invasion. The Russians, of course, say that it's under 1,000 at this point. Defense experts usually calculate invading commanders usually need an advantage in numbers of around three to one to attack a defending force. In house-to-house combat in inner cities, which is what Moscow is attempting, this calculation can be as many as four to one necessary. Russia apparently began the invasion with about 230,000 troops, including the troops in Belarus, as well as the troops that were in the Black Sea. 
That's only a few thousand more than Ukraine's entire armed force. So there is some doubt as to whether the sort of inevitability of Russian victory is quite so inevitable after all. Meanwhile, Russia, apparently in a bid to just throw warm bodies at the situation, they're now recruiting Syrians into the Ukrainian invasion. And I've heard reports on the ground, of course, that Russia has been using Chechenian soldiers in order to invade Ukraine as well. Apparently, there's some reports of human rights abuses taking place from those Chechenian soldiers, including up to and including rape, some of the reports that I've been hearing. Moscow is currently recruiting Syrians skilled in urban combat to fight in Ukraine as Russia's invasion is poised to expand deeper into cities, according to U.S. officials. An American assessment indicates that Russia, which has been operating inside Syria since 2015, has in recent days been recruiting fighters from there, hoping their expertise in urban combat can help take Kiev and deal a devastating blow to the Ukrainian government. By the way, the, the Syrian experience with urban combat has basically been rubble and leveled cities. If you look, take take a look at the, the major cities like Aleppo in Syria, and you will see uh, that the, the solution by the Syrian forces there was to just completely destroy the city outright. It's unclear how many fighters have been identified. Some are already in Russia preparing to enter the conflict, according to the Wall Street Journal. Officials declined to elaborate on what else is known about the deployment of Syrian fighters to Ukraine, the status or precise scale of the effort. Apparently, Russia is offering volunteers from the country between $200 and $300 to go to Ukraine to operate as guards for six months at a time, which, by the way, demonstrates just how impoverished much of the world is when you are offered $200 to $300 to go risk your life in a country you've never heard of for six months at a time. Demonstrates just how terrible things are in Syria, which is a country, of course, that was basically farmed out to the Russians to handle thanks to the Obama administration drawing a red line, then refusing to enforce a red line about the use of chemical weapons and then handing over the entire issue to Putin, who promptly came in and essentially made Syria a Russian tributary. Ukraine is turning more and more into a proxy war. You've got the West sending in fighters. You have the Russians now recruiting fighters from Syria. It's turning into more and more of a mess. You might be looking for some places to stash your wealth where your wealth is going to grow. Well, there are certain areas where if you stash your wealth, Historically, you've done pretty well. One of those areas is high-end art. Okay, High-end art does really, really well. One analyst at City claims you can improve portfolio diversification by adding exposure to high-end art because even if you don't have truckloads of cash to buy a Van Gogh or a Picasso, you can still diversify with that excellent asset class with Masterworks. It's the online app transforming multi-million dollar art into investable securitized product. Since 2017, Masterworks has offered over 100 paintings and sold three paintings, each realizing a net annualized gain in excess of 30% per work. That's not an indication of Masterworks' overall performance. Past performance does not guarantee future results. But wait, Masterworks right now is offering Ben Shapiro listeners VIP access. To take advantage of the special offer, I've arranged for you to diversify your savings by heading to masterworks.io slash Ben. That's masterworks.io slash Ben. You can see the important disclosures at masterworks.io slash DC. Before deciding to invest, carefully review those important disclosures once again at masterworks.io slash DC. And then head on over to masterworks.io slash Ben to start investing in high-end art today. Fighters are also pouring into the country to fight on the side of the Kiev-based government. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky said last week 16,000 foreigners had volunteered to fight for Ukraine, part of what he described as an international legion. With volunteers from other countries flowing into Ukraine, the conflict there could become a new center of gravity for foreign fighters, said Jennifer Caffarella, National Security Fellow at the Institute for the Study of War in Washington, D.C. She said the Russian deployment of foreign fighters from Syria into Ukraine internationalizes the Ukraine war and therefore could link in Ukraine to broader cross-regional dynamics, particularly in the Middle East. So the, the battle for Ukraine continues apace. The, the human rights violations that the Russians are now engaged in are, are fairly clear at this point. The Ukrainian foreign minister, his name is Dmitry Kulebo, he says that the people of Ukraine are paying the price for NATO's unwillingness to act. Now, of course, NATO has suggested that it does not want to set up a no-fly zone because they don't want to be in direct combat with Russian forces. Pretty much everybody in the West agrees on this. Once the deterrence failed, all you have left are bad options. Here's Ukraine's foreign minister saying that Ukraine is paying the price, which is true. It doesn't mean that we should set up a no-fly zone. Those countries who had never supplied us with weapons are now doing so. So I'm used to it. We are now in the phase where NATO is saying, no, we're, gonna not, we're not going to do that. The time will come. It's again the issue of price. We do not, uh, the, it's Ukrainians, it's the people of Ukraine who will pay the price for the reluctance of NATO to act. Okay, meanwhile, the Russians are starting to make demands. Zelensky, for his part, is, is asking desperately for sending planes. 
According to the Associated Press, fighting for his country's survival, Ukraine's leader made a desperate plea on Saturday to American lawmakers for the United States to help get more warplanes to his military and cut off Russian oil imports as Kiev tries to stave off the Russian invasion. Zelensky opened the private video call with U.S. lawmakers by telling them this could be the last time they see him alive. He's been saying that a lot lately. That apparently is not an ill-founded concern. There were rumors that Vladimir Putin had actually told Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, who'd been acting as an emissary a go-between, we'll talk about that in a moment, that, that he actually said, we know exactly where Zelensky is. So the question of whether Zelensky's life is in danger is really not an open question. Zelensky, of course, has remained in Kiev in the capital, which has a vast Russian armored column threatening from the north. Apparently, Zelensky told Congress Ukraine needs to secure its skies, either through a no-fly zone enforced by NATO or through the provision of more warplanes so Ukraine could better defend itself. And that was the major move over the weekend by the United States, was to basically give the go-ahead to a, a shipment of foreign planes into Ukraine in an attempt to make sure that the sky remains open. Meanwhile, the Russians have announced their demands for ending the war in Ukraine, according to Patrick Rival, who's a Moscow reporter for ABC News. He said that Ukraine, uh, according to the Kremlin, Ukraine must change its constitution to formally guarantee it won't join any blocs, i.e. NATO or the EU. It must recognize Crimea as part of Russia, and it must recognize the eastern separatist regions as independent. Now, if it were just the last two, if it were just recognizing Crimea as part of Russia and recognizing the eastern separatist regions as independent, I think that that's probably a deal that gets done. The reason that probably gets done is because it's, a re it's, it's just a recognition of the reality on the ground, which is those eastern provinces in the Donbass region were already run in proxy fashion by Russia. They were disputed by Ukraine, but the reality is that Russia had sent its little green men, so-called little green men, into those areas and already secured those areas for a Russian proxy state over there, and Crimea has been formally annexed by Russia. So in reality, Ukraine isn't taking back those areas anytime soon. It's that first request that Ukraine change its constitution to formally guarantee for all time that it won't join any blocs, meaning NATO or the EU. That's going to be the one that's a major holdup, because what that means is that Ukraine is then at the mercy of the Russians pretty much anytime Russia wants. Because as long, what we found out here, is that as long as you're not a member of NATO or the EU, if Russia attacks, you're on your own. We'll provide you some material, but we're not going to come in and we're not going to save you. And so why would Ukraine give that up? There was also one more demand, apparently, which is that Russia get to name the prime minister of Ukraine serving alongside Vladimir Zelensky, which of course would be a prelude to Russia murdering Zelensky and then putting the prime minister in the president's spot. And everybody sort of knows that at this point. Apparently, Ukraine has turned down that position. For folks who are saying that Ukraine should just take that deal, the problem is that Ukraine can't take the deal. Ukraine can't take the deal because why in the world would you say that you are going to give up your ability to make future moves with regard to who you ally with to a state that has now invaded your country and bombed your major cities and threatened to kill your president? Like that, that's, imagine that this were the United States and any foreign invader and their only conditions were not that we give up provinces we barely control, but also that the United States never have its own foreign policy again and we get to appoint the vice president. Like that, that would be a, a pretty much non-starter. And that's how Zelensky and the rest of the world are treating the Russian demands. Well, with things getting more and more chaotic, you need to get your financial house in order. One way to do that is to stop running up those giant credit card bills. You know the interest rate on those things? Those will just, that'll just kill you. It'll put you behind an eight ball and you will never get out from behind that eight ball. This is why you need a fixed rate credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. You could save thousands in interest. Rates start at 4.98% APR with auto pay and excellent credit. That's lower than your average credit card interest rate of over 19% APR. You can get a loan from $5,000 to $100,000. There are absolutely no fees. The application is 100% online. You can even get your money in your bank account as soon as the day you apply. Lightstream believes people with good credit deserve a better loan experience that is exactly what they are delivering. For my listeners right now, apply to get a special interest rate discount. Save even more. The only way to get that discount, head on over to lightstream.com slash Shapiro. Again, that's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M.com slash Shapiro. I know too many people have gotten into credit card debt and never been able to get out. You should stop Whatever credit card problems you have right now, stop it right now with a consolidated credit card loan with lightstream.com slash Shapiro. Subject to credit approval, rates range from 4.98% APR to 19.99% APR, included 0.50% auto pay discount. Lowest rate requires excellent credit. Terms and conditions apply. Officers subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash Shapiro for more information. Meanwhile, Vladimir Putin is ramping up the rhetoric because, again, Putin, his entire shtick here is that he has reversed mutually assured destruction. Mutually assured destruction was a was a guarantee that there would be no more large wars between major powers. You would instead get proxy wars. And Vladimir Putin was like, okay, well, then let's do the proxy war thing. The proxy war thing works just fine for me. And so he keeps threatening larger war to prevent the West from getting more directly involved in Ukraine. Here is Vladimir, here is Vladimir Putin uh, over the course of the last 24 hours. 
He says, now we are hearing a no-fly zone must be established over the territory of Ukraine. It's impossible to do so over the territory of Ukraine itself. It's possible only from the territory of some neighboring countries. Any move in this direction will be viewed by us as participation in the armed conflict of whichever side whose territory will pose a threat to our service members. That very second, we will view them as participants of the military conflict. It would not matter what members they are. So he's saying, you try to set up a no-fly zone, and we will then bomb Poland, is essentially what, what he's claiming there. Now, he did not say that the shipment of foreign material into Ukraine would be treated as an act of war, because, of course, that would be an act of foolishness. If, if the idea is that a shipment of arms across the Romanian border is considered an act of war by Putin, by Romania, and by NATO, he's, he's declaring his own suicide on a foreign policy scale. Because the reality of the situation, once again, is that the only thing that Putin has is those nuclear weapons. If it came to a conventional war straight up between the West and Russia, Russia's done. And Putin knows that, which is why he keeps threatening nuclear war, of course. Meanwhile, internally, Russia has been cracking down on dissent in some pretty significant ways. According to the Wall Street Journal, Russia passed a law that threatens prison time for anyone publishing what authorities consider to be false information about the country's invasion of Ukraine, which the Kremlin refers to as a special military operation. The law, a change to the country's criminal code, which the lower chamber of Russia's parliament approved on Friday, says anyone found guilty of knowingly disseminating false information and data about the use of Russia's armed forces would be punished by a prison sentence of up to 15 years or a fine of up to 1.5 million rubles, equivalent to about $14,000. Reporting data on Russia's military casualties not provided by the Russian defense ministry would also be considered a violation. This is what straight up authoritarianism looks like, obviously, as you shut down anybody who, who even utters a word of dissent. The move caused news organizations to weigh their options, including suspending operations in Russia, limiting use of their reporters' bylines or adhering to the Kremlin's description of its actions in Ukraine as a special military operation or peacekeeping mission. This basically shut down all foreign media in Russia. CNN on Friday said it would completely stop broadcasting in Russia. The BBC and Bloomberg News suspended the work of their journalists inside the country to avoid those people being taken hostage by the Russian government. The Kremlin spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, told reporters on Saturday the law was justified. He said it was urgently needed in connection with the absolutely unprecedented information war unleashed against our country. Against this background, it was necessary to adopt a tough law, which, of course, is a law. It wasn't necessary to adopt a tough law, but they're going to anyway. Nick Clegg, president for global affairs at Meta, which is Facebook, said soon millions of ordinary Russians will find themselves cut off from reliable information. We'll continue to do everything we can to restore our services so they remain available to people with to people to safely and securely express themselves and organize for action. Russian authorities on Friday blocked Facebook completely. In response to restrictions, it said the social media platform had placed on Russian media outlets, including state news agencies like RIA Novisti, Sputnik, and RT. BBC Director General Tim Davies said this legislation appears to criminalize the process of independent journalism. The safety of our staff is paramount. We're not prepared to expose them to the risk of criminal prosecution. Meanwhile, the Russians are just arresting people en masse, apparently. They've arrested 3,000 people as protests have grown across Russia. Not everybody in Russia is up for a completely useless war. According to the New York Times, despite the threat of years-long prison terms, thousands of Russians joined anti-war rallies across the country on Sunday in a striking show of the pent-up anger in Russian society about Putin's invasion of Ukraine. The police reported more than 3,000 arrests across the country. That is the highest nationwide total officially reported in any single day of protest in recent memory, according to the New York Times. An activist group that tracks arrests, OVD Info, reported detentions in 49 separate Russian cities. In the city of Kaliningrad, near the Baltic Sea, a woman protesting the war was recorded in a video posted on Twitter telling a police officer she had survived the Nazi siege of Leningrad. And the officer said, are you here to support the fascists? Repeating the Kremlin narrative about the war in Ukraine before calling over other policemen and telling them arrest them all. So imagine that you spend your life living under the Soviet Union and living through the Nazi invasion of Russia only to see Russia turn around and invade Ukraine. And then you're arrested for protesting that. Pretty horrific stuff. Meanwhile, according to the Wall Street Journal, Russia's military chief is under significant pressure thanks to his failures here. The Wall Street Journal reports when Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered the country's nuclear forces to go on high alert last week, he looked down a long table at his defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, who nodded in assent. In his decade at the head of the Russian military, Shoigu, who has never been a professional soldier but holds the rank of general of the army, has worked to modernize and professionalize the armed forces, build their image as an effective fighting machine and foreign policy tool. Victories in Crimea and Syria helped propel Shoigu and the military to the center of Putin's Kremlin power structure. However, 
Russian troops' failure to quickly seize Ukraine has shown Shoigu's changes, while real, did not create a fearsome fighting force. Poor logistics, flawed strategy, ill-prepared troops mean any victory will be immensely costly and an occupation very difficult to sustain. Which means, possibly, possibly, there's room for an off-ramp here if Putin can get it through his head that he's not going to win. The longer Ukraine holds out, the more Putin is going to look for an off-ramp, which is why it's necessary to continue shipping material into Ukraine to prolong the conflict. Experts on the Russian military play some of the blame on Shoigu's willingness to back Putin's plans, even if they're unrealistic. That meant agreeing with the assumption that the Ukrainian military would quickly fold in the face of Russia and that Russian troops would be greeted as liberators. Michael Kaufman, director of Russia Studies at CNA, a nonprofit research and analysis organization, says, beyond Putin, this is very damning for Shoigu. By agreeing to these assumptions and this type of operation, he's essentially thrown the Russian military into full-scale disaster. So Putin is in deeper than he bargained for right now, and he doesn't have a particularly easy way out. He's trying to propaganda his way through this thing. The Russians put out a propaganda video that's rather creepy and weird. Uh, it's basically just a bunch of people chanting pro-Russia slogans passionately into the camera as they wave Russian flags. Uh, again, th it looks staged, frankly. This doesn't look like a giant outpouring of, of Russian sentiment on behalf of the Ukraine war. I don't know why they've got this uh, bizarre-looking chunky fellow at the front. This is a... And whoever doesn't cheer loud enough will be shot. That's the that's the way these things typically go. That is a very enthusiastic Brian Stelter lookalike there in, the, in that Russian propaganda video. Meanwhile, it is very unclear at this point what is going to come next. We are, are sort of on a razor's edge here, which is why everybody is hoping to go weapons down. For the moment, the, the biggest thing that the United States is trying to do is, is calm our allies, because after you watch the Russian bear trot over your border, it's very difficult to look south if you're Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia and say, yeah, things are going great. According to The New York Times, strengthening deterrence in Baltic states is no longer enough to protect against Russia, according to Lithuania's president. An attack on one is an attack on all, said U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. He said the United States, with all allies and partners, we will defend every, every inch of NATO territory should it come under attack. Now, there's been a lot of talk about how NATO, it's really, after 91, we should have gotten rid of NATO. After the fall of the Berlin Wall, after the Soviet Union collapsed, there was no reason for NATO because NATO, of course, had been formed in the aftermath of World War II in order to provide a protection against Stalin's encroachment into Europe. And the answer is, well, if NATO didn't exist, wouldn't Putin already be standing in Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia? It was not that we provoked Russia into becoming more aggressive on its borders. Russia has historically been quite aggressive on its borders. It's that there is a lack of trust by the West for whatever arose next. If Russia had turned into a thriving democracy rather than a, an oligarchic dictatorship run on the basis of oil, it would have been a lot easier to make the case that NATO should have been disbanded. It's very difficult. I, I'm, I'm frankly confused by the argument that NATO should have been disbanded because now a non-NATO country is being invaded. That seems like a very, very strange argument. For, people are making that argument. It seems like a desperate attempt to swivel out of the fact that what really led to this invasion is the West's weakness in the face of Putin, not the West's strength in the face of Putin. It was not that NATO existed that caused Putin to invade Ukraine. It's the fact that NATO didn't include Ukraine that caused Putin to invade Ukraine. That doesn't mean that the West had to acquiesce to Ukraine's attempts to join NATO. The problem is we kept giving them an in-between message. Maybe you should join, maybe you should not. And then we made clear to Putin we weren't going to do anything if he actually invaded sovereign countries like Georgia, as well as Crimea, in Ukraine. That's what led to all of this. Already coming up, Jen Psaki, the rest of the team at the White House, they don't have a great plan here, but they do have one thing they say over and over. At least we're not Trump. We'll get to that in just one more minute. But here is the thing. If you need employees better than Jen Psaki, what you really need is to use ZipRecruiter because ZipRecruiter makes sure that you have the access to the best employees. Their matching technology helps you find the right people for your roles fast. Right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Daily Wire. ZipRecruiter uses its powerful technology to find and match the right candidates up with your job. Then it proactively presents those candidates to you. You can easily review these recommended candidates, invite your top choices to apply for your job. That encourages them to apply faster. No wonder ZipRecruiter is the number one rated hiring site in the United States based on G2 ratings. ZipRecruiter's technology is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the very first day. Find the right employees for your workplace with ZipRecruiter. Try it for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash D-A-I-L-Y-W-I-R-E. That is ZipRecruiter.com slash Daily Wire. ZipRecruiter.com slash D-A-I-L-Y-W-I-R-E. ZipRecruiter is indeed the smartest way to hire, so get yourself the best employees fast and do it at ZipRecruiter today. For their part, the, the Biden administration seems sort of stuck here 
all they've got at this point is just saying that we should be grateful that Trump is not president, which is weird since when Trump was president, there was no invasion of Ukraine. I'm frankly befuddled by the counterfactual in which we learn that Putin definitely would have invaded even if Trump were president, which is weird because Trump was president and he didn't invade. Here's Jen Psaki trying to claim that Joe Biden is doing a masterful job on the world stage here. You know, another reason why the American people are uh, grateful, the majority of the American people, that President Biden has not taken a page out of his predecessor's playbook as it relates to global engagement and global leadership, because certainly we could be in a different place. It's, um, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm just going to say that if Trump had been president, do you think he would have spent six months talking about all the things we wouldn't do? I mean, that, that, that was not very typical Trump. At, at, the, at the very least, Trump was extraordinarily erratic in his public statements about foreign policy, which made people quite wary of not knowing what he was going to do. Even if he said something nice about Putin, five minutes later, he might be flinging a bomb into Syria or something. Like, he just didn't know. And that was a strategic move on the part of Trump, actually. I mean, he's always said that he likes strategic ambiguity when it comes to his plans on foreign policy. Meanwhile, Tony Blinken saying some of the empty words. He's saying, you know, we all stand with Ukraine. And that's that's very nice. I mean, sure, that's that's great. The entire world stands with Ukraine. We've come from several days of meetings with uh, NATO, the European Union, uh, countries beyond the G7. Uh, and we see that support not only uh, continue security support, humanitarian support, economic support, but uh, that support will increase. So Blinken said that uh, Vladimir Putin is destined to lose. Well, that's sort of the problem is that he is not destined to do anything, right? His fate relies solely and completely on his own decision-making and the decision-making of, of the West in the face of his, of his aggressive predations. Here is Antony Blinken. Whenever people say, history will say, you, you don't know anything. You, you don't know what history will say because history has not yet been written. We don't know what's going to happen in Ukraine yet. Here is Antony Blinken doing the, the arc of history bends toward justice routine. Just winning uh, a battle is not winning the war. Uh, taking a city does not mean he's taking the hearts and minds of the Ukrainian people. On the contrary, uh, he mm -hmm. is destined to lose. Uh, the Ukrainian people have demonstrated that they will not allow themselves to be subjugated to Vladimir Putin or to Russia's rule. Okay, meanwhile, the, the options for the United States are shrinking rather rapidly. And they're, they're trying to offer some sort of off-ramp to Putin. And what that really means is you steadily ramp up the military pressure as much as you can by shipping in wartime material, including planes, into Ukraine. And then meanwhile, you try to negotiate some sort of off-ramp where Putin doesn't lose complete face with his people. He gets to claim some sort of victory and then he goes home and then presumably we continue shipping enormous amounts of material into Ukraine so Ukraine can defend itself and deter Russia invasion in the first place. To its credit, the Biden administration is doing some of this stuff. So Tony Blinken did say yesterday that the United States has given a green light to NATO countries to send jets to Ukraine. What more can the United States do here if, for instance, the Polish government, a NATO member, wants to send fighter jets? Does that get a green light from the U.S.? That gets a green light. In fact, we're talking uh, with uh, our Polish friends right now about what we might be able to do to backfill uh, their needs if, in fact, they choose to provide these fighter jets to, to the Ukrainians. So essentially what we're saying to Poland right now is we will send you some new fighter jets if you send your old fighter jets to the Ukrainians so that they can fight for the skies over Ukraine. Blinken also said that perhaps the United States would discuss a ban on Russian oil imports. I don't know where the, the perhaps is at this point. I mean, either you're at war or you're not at war. I, like the, this idea that we're supposed to not ramp up domestic oil production because we have to keep the oil prices low. By the way, it ain't working. As we'll discuss in a moment, the oil prices are now jumping to record highs. Here's Tony Blinken. And when it comes to oil, Russian oil, um, I was on the phone yesterday with the, the president and other members of the cabinet uh, on exactly uh, this subject. And we are now talking uh, to our European partners and allies to look uh, in a coordinated way uh, at the uh, prospect of banning the import of Russian oil uh, while making sure that there is uh, still an appropriate supply of oil on, on world markets. OK, as we'll discuss in a moment, there's a lot of confusion inside the Biden administration. One of the big problems here is that the Biden administration seems pretty confused about its own messaging. On the one hand, you'll have people inside the Biden administration openly saying that that Putin is committing war crimes, which pretty obviously he is. On the other hand, you'll have Antony Blinken obfuscating on war crimes. And you, you kind of know what Blinken is doing. Again, I am not a Tony Blinken fan, but Antony Blinken suggesting that Vladimir Putin, we don't know about the war crimes. We're not sure. That is a way of saying to Putin, you need to stop this now or we are going to have to come out and accuse you of war crimes. He doesn't want to overtly accuse Putin of being a war criminal because once you do that, there are a bunch of new sort of actions that must be taken, including 
perhaps the, imp- the, the implication that you might try to set up a no-fly zone. Because if you know that you are indiscriminately bombing civilians from the air, it makes it very difficult for NATO members to stand by and do nothing. That was sort of the case when it came to the, the Yugoslav war in the middle of the 90s. So here is, uh, here's Anthony Blinken trying to avoid stepping into a bear pit. We've seen very credible reports of um, deliberate attacks on civilians, which would constitute uh, a war crime. Uh, we've seen very uh, credible reports about the uh, the use of certain weapons. Uh, and what we're doing right now is documenting all of this, uh, putting it all together, uh, looking at it, and making sure that uh, as uh, people and the appropriate uh, organizations and institutions investigate whether uh, war crimes have been or are being committed, uh, that um, we can uh, support uh, whatever whatever they're doing. Okay, so uh, again... Yeah, they're, they're trying to give Putin an off-ramp while at the same time ramping up the military pressure, which is correct. Now, there are some measures that are being taken here that really are unprecedented, and if they are used as precedent, are kind of scary. They're, Reuters reports that U.S. payments firms like Visa and MasterCard said they were suspending operations in Russia completely over the invasion of Ukraine, and they would work with clients and partners there to seek all trans- to seek to cease all transactions within days. All transactions initiated with visa cards issued in Russia will no longer work outside the country. Any visa cards issued outside of Russia will no longer work within the country. Al Kelly, the chief executive officer of Visa, said, we are compelled to act following Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine and the unacceptable events that we have witnessed. For those who are very concerned about the debanking efforts of, for example, the trucker convoy in Canada, they look at the simple fact that this is possible, that credit card companies can just, boom, turn off the credit flow and prevent you from going to the supermarket. And they're perturbed by this because if the precedent is that a country does a thing that you don't like and therefore visa can just cut off all operations would you trust that company i mean this is a this is a scary precedent you can say that it's justified but there have to be some pretty strict limits placed i would i would assume in american law on american companies doing this sort of stuff to american citizens because frankly i wouldn't want to see this logic extended to anybody outside of what is currently happening in russia I also have to say, I'm not particularly certain how cutting off the visa cards for a normal Russian citizen is going to somehow solve this conflict per se. I I see what Visa is doing. I see what MasterCard is doing. But, you know, this is going to uh, exacerbate a a really growing humanitarian problem inside of Russia. Again, I understand that that may be necessary in order to pressure Putin from the ground up, although... I've, I've yet to see economic sanctions end with the sort of regime change that people wanted to end with. This was tried against Saddam Hussein with regard to sanctions for years and years and years. The impoverishment of regime for purposes of cutting off its military supply and power, like with Iran or with Iraq, that's one thing. Trying to just go after a regime that has committed warfare in order to, in order to do what? You know, fo- foster a coup, foster some sort of regime change? Like that, that, that does not have a long prized history. Speaking of which, the United States still has not cut off the Russian oil at this point. The labor secretary, Marty Walsh, he couldn't give an answer yesterday as to why we have not cut off the Russian oil at this point. A lot of people still don't want to touch crude, even if there is a carve out. I want to understand the message the administration is sending right now. Do you want refiners to buy that crude or do you want them to step back from it? Is that a welcome development, even though the sanctions aren't there? Well, again, I'm not in a position to be able to speak on that right now. I know that uh, as the president had laid out the sanctions last week or actually over the last 10 days. Uh, he's been very thoughtful in doing them, working across the globe and doing them. And I think those, I'm sure those conversations are happening right now. Okay, that is very, very useless. And thank you for that obfuscation, sir. And meanwhile, the oil prices have spiked to $130 a barrel as the Russians escalated their attacks. According to the Wall Street Journal, oil buyers racing to replace Russia's taboo crude are paying record premiums for barrels that can be delivered now rather than later, reflecting worries about adequate near-term fuel supplies and expectations that high prices will reduce consumption and encourage drilling. Prices for April deliveries of crude have shot up since Russia invaded Ukraine. The main U.S. price last week topped 110 bucks a barrel for the first time in more than a decade. At an off-hours trading late on Sunday, they burst above $130 following fresh attacks, mounting civilian casualties, a push by U.S. lawmakers to ban Russian oil imports. Futures contract for delivery in subsequent months have risen as well, not by as much. When U.S. futures for delivery next month ended Wednesday at $110 a barrel, contracts for next March settled in at about $85 a barrel. The $26 price difference has never been greater in favor of the front month. That, of course, is because people are, are I think, optimistic that, that this will be over somewhat quickly, and I think maybe overly optimistic. The widest spread on record came in April 2020 when the global economy was locking down to slow the spread of COVID-19 and front month U.S. oil futures prices plunged into negative territory. The worry was that fuel consumption was falling faster than oil producers could actually shut off the spigots, and so supply radically outpaced demand at that point in time. 
So the oil prices have shot up fairly dramatically. It is not just oil, by the way. Wheat prices are shooting up dramatically as well because Ukraine is a source of an enormous amount of, uh, of, of food. According to the BBC, UK food producers don't import many items from Russia or Ukraine, but prices can still rise because of an increase in associated costs. Meanwhile, the cost of everyday food might rise in places like Turkey and North Africa, which do rely on wheat and corn from Ukraine and Russia as well. And of course, the stock market has been tanking nearly everywhere. So that is going to, uh, to cut off some pension funds. So what is left in the tank for the West? Not tons. I mean, again, I keep coming back to you. You just have to keep resupplying the military weaponry and hope that Russia does not finish off Ukraine. If Russia finishes off Ukraine, then it consolidates its gains. And essentially, at that point, the West has a choice. They can either continue to suffer in the face of, of cutting off Russian's oil supply to Europe, or, and, and a new Cold War sort of begins, or they can back down again, like they have historically done. But if they're able to rest control of Ukraine from Russia, if, if Ukraine is able to stave off Russia long enough to come to some sort of negotiated solution, that is, in fact, the best available off-ramp here. It has been for, for at least a week, really, since the invasion began. We'll get to more of that in just one second. If all of this chaos on the foreign front puts you in mind of human mortality, now would be an excellent time for you to get the insurance that you need. I mean, you should have done it before, but now you really should do it. Life insurance gets more expensive as you age. It is smart to get a policy sooner rather than later because literally every minute that you are alive, you are slightly older than you were in, in the minute before. Like right now, you're older than you were at the beginning of this ad. That is why there is Policy Genius. Policy Genius is your one-stop shop to find and buy the insurance you need. Head on over to policygenius.com slash Shapiro. Answer a few questions in minutes. You can compare personalized quotes from top companies and find your lowest price. You could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. The team of licensed experts at Policy Genius will help you understand your options and apply for the policy you choose. The Policy Genius team works for you, not the insurance companies. You can trust them to offer unbiased help and advocate for you at every step until you're covered. Policy Genius doesn't do extra fees. They don't sell your information to third parties. They have thousands of five-star reviews across Google and Trustpilot, which is why since 2014, Policy Genius has helped over 30 million people shop for insurance and placed over $120 billion in coverage. Head on over to policygenius.com slash Shapiro today. Get your free life insurance quotes. See how much you could save. Alrighty. Meanwhile, here at The Daily Wire, it's another big week for us because we're always bringing you new awesome material. This Thursday night, March 10th, we are premiering yet another film, another Daily Wire film. We cannot wait to share it with you. The film is called The Hyperions. It's exactly what entertainment in Hollywood is missing these days. It's not woke. It has zero underlying political message. It's just fun. It's just excellent. Because when it comes to entertainment, that's really all that you want. Something that entertains you and that does not punch you in the face with a fist of leftist garbage. Check out the trailer. Good day, Hyperion Club members. We've come for one thing. Our Titan badges. This Titan badge can grant an individual superhuman power. Perhaps it's time for someone else to take on the responsibility. On my way. She's trying to destroy me. It's a great movie. I, I've, I've seen it because, of course, I'm a producer on it, so, so I have to. But the Hyperion's is great. It's super fun. It's really different. You've never seen anything quite like it before. It's a dysfunctional family film with throwback vibes. It's 100% worth the stream. We will be streaming the film once on March 10th for all of YouTube to see. This is the last time we're doing this. The last time. So be sure to head on over to Daily Wire's YouTube channel, set a reminder for the live showing. After that, you need to be a member to get in on the action. Head on over to dailywire.com slash subscribe so you don't miss any of the growing cache of content we have to offer. Also, you know, we launched a publishing house over here at DW. It's called DW Books. And we have taken upon ourselves to start publishing books that people just will not publish because they are afraid of the blowback. We are excited. One of the first books we will be publishing is 12 Seconds in the Dark by Sergeant Mattingly. The book is the true story of what really happened the night of the tragic Breonna Taylor shooting. Mattingly is a 20-year police veteran. He takes readers inside his department's response, debunks the lies that have been recklessly shared with the public. Check out the trailer. It was very chaotic. It was very quick. Instantly, I knew I was shot. Breonna Taylor, she was caught in the crossfire of those bullets. As soon as your brain's registering, it's already over. The media got so many things wrong in this case, saying we had the wrong apartment. Her name wasn't on the warrant. She was shot and killed in her sleep, in her bed. 
these are lies. This is not true. And all the while you're hearing all these outside influences from athletes and Oprah and Ellen DeGeneres and Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, all those people coming and attacking you, putting your name on their account saying he should be in prison. All these things that they have no idea what they're talking about, but they have such influence. The more we attack police for doing their job, the less good qualified police you're gonna have. When you read 12 Seconds in the Dark, you will find out the truth of what really happened the night of the Breonna Taylor raid. It's a really important story. And remember, this book was supposed to be published originally by an imprint of Simon & Schuster, and the wokes over there got it canceled. We don't do that over here. In a world where voices like Sergeant Mattingly's are censored, this story is incredibly important. We are grateful to have this brave truth teller on board. The book releases March 15th. It is available for pre-order right now on Amazon or anywhere you buy books online. Go to get your pre-ordered copy today. I can promise you it will sell out. You're listening to the largest, fastest-growing conservative podcast and radio show in the nation. So the West is looking for options in Ukraine. Again, I think the only option really is you just have to keep the resupply up. You got to get the jets in there. You got the bullets in there. You got to get the guns in there. You got to get all of the the Stinger missiles. You got to get what you can get in there and allow the Ukrainians to fend off the complete takeover of Ukraine. If they can do that, then there's an opening for Putin to take some sort of face-saving off-ramp. Boris Johnson from the UK, the prime minister who's taken a very hawkish position on this situation, he has a piece in the New York Times today talking about the, the options that are on the table for the West. He says, it's now clear diplomacy never had a chance. It's precisely because of our respect for Russia we find the actions of Putin so unconscionable. Putin is attempting the destruction of the very foundation of international relations and the UN Charter, the right of nations to decide their own future free from aggression and fear of invasion. His assault on Ukraine began with a confected pretext and a flagrant violation of international law. It is sinking further into a sordid campaign of war crimes and unthinkable violence against civilians. That there can be no comparison with the assault on Ukraine. We in the UK know something of Putin's ruthlessness, says Boris Johnson. Four years ago, we endured the outcome of Russian operatives' use of chemical weapons against people in Salisbury, England, and our allies rallied to our side. We also warned the world that, that we also warned that the world was entering into a period of competition with authoritarian states would test the mettle of the West in nearly every domain. He says it's no longer enough to express warm platitudes about the rules-based international order. We're going to have to actively defend it. So he says, here's his six-point plan for Ukraine. First, we have to mobilize an international humanitarian coalition. Second, we have to do more to help Ukraine defend itself. Third, we have to maximize economic pressure on Putin's regime. Fourth, we have to prevent any creeping normalization of what Russia does in Ukraine. We can't allow Kremlin to bite off chunks of an independent country and inflict immense human suffering and then creep back into the fold. Well, it's that fourth one that's going to be a sticking point because Russia's not going to give up the Donbass region or Crimea. So if the United States and the West take the position that basically Putin can never be given anything here. It's going to be very difficult to find an off-ramp. He says then, we should always be open to diplomacy and de-escalation, provided that the government of Ukraine has full agency in any potential settlement. There can't be a new Yalta decided over by the heads of the people of Ukraine by external powers. And then, of course, he says we have to strengthen Euro-Atlantic security. It's that fourth point that he mentions, that there can't be any normalization of what Russia does to Ukraine. That normalization already took place in Georgia in 2008. It already took place in Crimea in 2014. The, the real question now is how do you establish status quo ante and then begin to pour resources into border areas with Russia to deter invasions like this one? That's going to be the real question because all of these other efforts at mediation are just going to be a giant fail. The United States is taking the most bizarre tack with regard to negotiation. So as I say, I am not ripping on the Biden administration for the amount of military material they are pouring into Ukraine. In fact, I think that's a good strategy. The attempts to strategize with our European allies to get humanitarian and military aid into Ukraine, that's good from the Biden administration. By the way, even the attempt to downplay and de-escalate some of the rhetoric is not a bad move by the Biden administration. Where they are completely failing is when it comes to their attempts at international diplomacy. And the reason I say this is because they are still operating under the assumption that you can turn states that look very much like Vladimir Putin's states into friends rather than enemies by offering them some sort of concessions. And this is bizarre to me. At the same time that you're, you're learning the lesson that authoritarian dictators do not care about their commitment and will do whatever they can to maximize their own power, you are attempting to make overtures to authoritarian dictators who are not going to give you anything. This is the, this is the move that the, the Biden administration is simultaneously making. It's bizarre. I mean, and when I say that it's bizarre, I mean, like, the United States is now trying to go to Venezuela to act as a go-between. Nicolas Maduro is a socialist dictator who has his people eating dogs in the streets of Caracas. And you've got the Blinken 
Biden administration sending negotiators down to Venezuela to use them as some sort of go-between in an attempt to pry Venezuela loose from Russia. Yeah, good luck with that one. According to the Washington Post, a group of senior U.S. officials flew to Venezuela on Saturday for a meeting with Maduro's government to discuss the possibility of easing sanctions on Venezuelan oil exports as the Biden administration weighs a ban on imports of Russian oil and gas, according to two people familiar with the situation. So by the way, how kind of morally disreputable is this? We're, what Biden is now saying to Venezuela is, okay, the Russians, they're really bad. You know, they invaded a sovereign country. We need to cut off their oil supply. So we will come to you, a socialist dictatorship, where millions of people are living in abject poverty because of your dictatorship. And we will ask you for the oil. Makes perfect sense. Well, we'll go to a, a foreign nation that hates our guts, that sees the United States as a great Satan. And we'll ask them for the oil as opposed to the Russians in order so that we can cut off the Russians. I'm, I'm sure that that's going to work. That, that'll probably be great. According to the Washington Post, the trip is the highest level U.S. visit to the socialist state in years and comes as the United States is seeking to isolate Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. But here's the thing. We're not even isolating Russia because in the same time that we are, quote unquote, isolating Russia, we are now attempting to make overtures to Russia directly in order so that we can make concessions to Iran. So the lesson that the Biden administration is taking away from this is not we need a stronger world stance against authoritarian states that hate our allies, particularly our independent allies. Instead, the move by the Biden administration is, what if we just go to more of our enemies and we make concessions to, to them? What, what if we do that? And what if we even talk with the Russians about making concessions to them? According to the Wall Street Journal, fresh demands from Russia threatened to derail talks to restore the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. Moscow said it wanted written guarantees that Ukraine-related sanctions won't prevent it from trading broadly with Tehran under a revived pact. So now, the, because Biden wants some sort of garbage bullcrap deal with the Iranians, the Russians are holding him up. It's incredible. The demands made by Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov on Saturday, dismissed by U.S. officials on Sunday, came as Western and Iranian officials said they were near to reaching a deal to restore the nuclear pact, which lifted most international sanctions on Iran in exchange for tight but temporary, temporary restrictions on Tehran's nuclear programs. Western officials said they wanted a deal on the nuclear file in place this week. And it's unbelievable. We're using the Russians as the go-between in the Middle East. While we are sanctioning them on the global stage and shipping weapons into Ukraine to fight them. Meanwhile, by the way, the lead Russian negotiator, his name is Mikhail Ulyanov, he's openly bragging about the fact that Iran is besting the United States in this negotiation, thanks to the help of the Russians. The diplomatic incompetence of this administration is truly astonishing. You know, when people say, oh, look how they're mobilizing our European allies. Wrong. The European allies mobilized themselves and the United States, as always, jumped on the backseat of the car once it was already in motion. When it comes to Iran, the Russians are just leading us around by the nose. This is crazy. Here's Ulyanov explaining how stupid the West is. I'm absolutely sincere in this regard. Iran got much more than it could expect. Much more. We could rely on, on each other on many, many points. And on many, many points, through joint efforts, we succeeded. Iran got much more than it could expect, according to the Russians. So at the same time that Joe Biden and his team are like, we have to take a strong stance against Russia. They're going to Venezuela as both a moderate influence and in order to get their oil, emboldening Venezuela. They're emboldening Iran with the help of the Russians. It's incompetence on the highest scale. So, so what has this turned into now? It's turned into Thomas Friedman of the New York Times begging China to help out because nothing demonstrates strength quite like begging China. Thomas Friedman, whose theories about foreign policy have been wrong on nearly along every step of the way. And I mentioned last week the Thomas Friedman McDonald's theory of politics, suggesting that countries with McDonald's don't fight each other. That, of course, is not true. Well, now, according to The New York Times, with every passing day, the war in Ukraine becomes a bigger threat, becomes a bigger tragedy for the Ukrainian people, but also a bigger threat to the future of Europe and the world at large. There's only one country that might have the power to stop it. It's not the United States. It's China. I'm sure China's going to step in. I'm sure China's going to do something. He says, if China announced that rather than staying neutral, it was joining the economic boycott of Russia, it might shake Putin enough to stop this vicious war. At a minimum, it would give him pause because now he has no other significant ally aside from India in the world. Why would Xi Jinping take such a stand, which would seemingly undermine his dream of seizing Taiwan? The short answer is the past eight decades of relative peace among the great powers led to a rapidly globalizing world that has been key to China's rapid economic rise and the elevation out of poverty for some 800 million Chinese people since 1980. Peace has been very good for China says Thomas Friedman, 
Again, completely misunderstanding the nature of the Chinese Communist Party in the same way that he completely misunderstood the nature of Putin, in the same way he completely misunderstands the nature of Iran. It's just, it's incredible. These morons who got us to this impasse are now back at the table saying, well, what if we just beg China? What if we, what if we go to the Russians over? What if we beg the Iranians and the Venezuelans? You morons, you're the ones who brought this about. It is your pusillanimous rejection of peace through strength that brought this about in the first place. It's incredible. And the, unless you have, a, if you have no grand strategy here, what you end up with is a bunch of tactics. Some of the tactics will, will succeed. Some of the tactics will fail. The difference between tactics and strategy. Tactics are how you move troops around on a battlefield. Strategy is how you move troops around inside of an entire war. Okay, the strategy is, is a higher level than tactics. When, when you don't have a strategy, you just end up making tactical moves without any real plan. And that is what the left has been reduced to here. Because again, their, their giant strategy failed, but they refused to see that their strategy failed. The strategy of appeasement, the strategy of what if we just integrate in global markets? What if we just, what if we make nice with these people? What if we just go negotiate with them? What if diplomacy is our strategy? Diplomacy is not a strategy. Diplomacy is a tactic. And when you mistake diplomacy for a strategy rather than a tactic, you end up in wars. And the Biden administration still refuses to recognize that. So two things can be true at once. As always, they can be prosecuting the war in Ukraine halfway correctly. And at the same time, they can be making overtures to nations which are more likely to make future wars like this one significantly more likely impossible. The incompetence really knows few boundaries. All righty, we'll be back here later today with an additional hour of content. In the meantime, go check out our newest podcast, Morning Wire. Today's episode is available right now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to tune in. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the show. Help spread the word about The Ben Shapiro Show by giving us a five-star review and sharing the show with a friend. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out some of our other Daily Wire shows. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Elliot Feld. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our production manager is Pavel Wydowski. Associate producer, Bradford Carrington. Editing is by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and Makeup is by Fabiola Cristina. Production assistant, Jessica Crand. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. John Bickley here, Daily Wire Editor-in-Chief. Wake up every morning with our show, Morning Wire. On today's episode, the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine worsens as Russia escalates attacks, the price of gas surges, and Hollywood pulls out of Russia. Join us and get the facts first on the news you need to know with our show, Morning Wire. Morning Wire. 